important question. And because it's an important question, and because it's a question that comes from God and from his word, um, we need him, as we're going to see, uh, to make what we need to know clear. So we come before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we don't approach your word thinking that we are its master, but rather it masters us. It reveals to us who you are. It reveals to us who we are, and sometimes we don't like that. But Lord, it is for our good to have all of our failings exposed and to have all of your wonderful provisions and blessings shown to us and held out to us. So Lord, as we ponder this question today that Jesus asked his own disciples, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? We pray that we would all personally think through and give an account for our answer to that most important life and death question. So Lord, we pray for the working of your spirit in our time together, for me as I speak, and for all of us as we hear and respond to this question that you have put before us. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're looking at the most important question in the world. So regardless of how tired you are, regardless of what things have gone on during your week, you can't afford to miss what we're talking about this morning. And when I say you can't afford to miss it, it's not Steve's sermon that you can't afford to miss. It's not me that you can't afford to miss. You can quite easily miss me. In fact, I don't care if you forget who I am the moment you walk out of here. But rather, because it is God's message through his word. So what is the most important question that we're looking at? I mistakenly have already given it away. But let me rule out a few. It is not the question of, are you a Christian? The most important question is not, do you go to church? The most important question is not, where do you think you will go when you die? The most important question is not, what do people say about you? The most important question is not, have you lived a pretty good life? In fact, your answer to every single one of those questions is worth absolutely nothing if you get this question wrong. If you get this question wrong, you will not clearly see who God is, who you are, or the world in which we live. But on the other hand, if you do get it right, it is the key to both understanding and having everything. The question from the very mouth of Jesus in verse 29 is this, who do you say that I am? Not who do you say Steve is, Jesus speaking, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And so this morning we're going to look at it in this way. We're going to see the world's answer in verses 27 to 28, the disciples' answer in 29 to 30. Ask, how do we get it right? From Matthew's parallel account in chapter 16, verse 17, and wrap it up with, what's your answer? Who do you say Jesus is and its implications? So firstly, looking at, the world's answer in verses 27 to 28. 
Now, last week, we were looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through to 26, where Jesus had healed a man who was blind. And it was an unusual healing because it's the only healing that Jesus ever does that does not happen perfectly and instantly. It takes place in two stages of a little bit of sight before coming to fullness of sight. And we saw that the context said something about the meaning of why Jesus would heal in two stages. It wasn't that Jesus didn't get it right the first time around. He was providing a message and encouragement and a teaching opportunity for his disciples. Because just before this had taken place, his disciples had seen Jesus multiply bread in phenomenal proportions. He's seen them take five loaves of bread and somehow feed 5,000, just the men plus the women and the children, and still gather up 12 baskets of food left over. We see him multiply again for 4,000 people and take up seven baskets. And then the disciples, when they get on the boat, ask the question, we've got no bread. What are we going to do? And Jesus, aware of it, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you've got no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus was questioning the disciples. Do you not see? You've got eyes, but do you not actually see? Do you not see who I am and what my mission is? And after Jesus asked that question to the disciples, before their very eyes is a man who was blind. And he asked him a similar question, half spitting on his eyes, putting his hands on his eyes, and he asked this man, what do you see? To which he says, I see people, but they're kind of blurry. They kind of look like trees walking around. Then Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again, and the man is able to see clearly. There was a visible demonstration before his disciples, just as it was for this man born blind, coming to see and perceive at all is a gift which comes from Jesus Christ. And coming to see in its entirety is a gift that is given and is by Jesus Christ alone. For the disciples, what little understanding that they had, they had to recognise Jesus had given them understanding. And this same Jesus is the one who will continue to open their eyes that they might see him and his mission clearly. To use the language of Paul to the Philippians, the one who began a good work in them, would bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. But then for the disciples, when they way to Caesarea Philippi, which was actually quite a pagan area, it's strange that happens in that setting, Jesus turns to the disciples and asks them a question about, well, what is it that you see? What is it that you disciples see? But before he asked the disciples, he asked another easier question. What do other people see? What's the, what's, the concept, what's the popular opinion of the people? He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. Jesus doesn't say, what are people saying about the things that I do? He says, who do people say that I am? The answers that are given here are the exact same answers that Herod contemplated back in chapter 6. When, when he's giving a report about Jesus, he comes to the presumption that he's John the Baptist. But he says, yeah, some say he's Elijah or one of the other prophets. Although in the Matthew extended account in chapter 16 also lists Jeremiah as one of those possibilities. So the options that both cases seem to be the popular opinion of the crowd is either John the Baptist, which it was weird for Herod to make that conclusion because John the Baptist in the presence of Jesus had said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then Elijah, and Elijah had a lot of focus in the first century Judaism, not just because he was a guy who did some fantastic things in the Old Testament, but the second last verse of the Old Testament speaks of Elijah, where Malachi says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they're expecting that before the great and terrible day of the Lord Elijah would come. Now remember, Elijah didn't die. He was taken by a chariot of fire into heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. And it was prophesied that this Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. They see someone before them who was doing miracles. Elijah did miracles. You can see why they were asking the question, is potentially Jesus, this Elijah who was to come? But in our next chapter, Jesus answers and he speaks about this Elijah who was to come. Or in Matthew 11, verses 11 to 14, says very clearly, the Elijah who was to come was John the Baptist. So the general consensus of the ordinary everyday people on the street about Jesus was that he was a prophet. Whether he's John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets, they thought he was a prophet. And they'd rightly concluded that Jesus was a prophet. But they had wrongly concluded, as many do today, that he was just one of the many prophets. No, one, of, one amongst a line of equal other prophets who have come beforehand. So if you were playing Family Feud in the first century and the question is, who is Jesus? If you answer one of the prophets, then likely that's going to come up on the board. That's who the world then said that he was. If you're playing the same game in 2020, what sort of answers are you going to get come up on the, on the survey? Survey says, Grand Denny's up there. You might get a fairy tale. You might get a good teacher. You might get a good moral leader, an advocate for those who are on the outside. Again, every single one of those statements is true. But if Jesus to you is only confined to one of those descriptions, then that's actually an offence to the fullness of who he truly is. That would be like asking the question of who is Steve Adams and your answer is a guy who danced the maypole at the Mossvale show. 
Now, sadly, that's a true statement in primary school. But I'm quite glad that is not my um, defining identity. And for those who are visual thinkers, that's a wonderful image for you right there and then. So perhaps the disciples will have a better answer. We've heard what's being said around the disciples. But just because you're surrounded by particular views does not make that your view. It doesn't make it yours. Every single person must come to a conclusion about who is Jesus Christ and take responsibility and ownership for their own answer of who they say Jesus is. So Jesus moves us from the prevailing views that go around them, say, but... He's saying, yeah, okay, I've heard what you say about everyone else, but what do you say about who I am? The you there is plural, which you can't so much see in English, so I'll put the plural there in brackets. So if it was the Aussie Bible, I might say, who do you say that I am? What do you say? You know what I find most surprising about that question? is that at this point in time, Jesus has possibly been with his disciples, teaching them, doing miracles, sending them out on different things, and this is the first time he explicitly asked them for something by way of a confession about who they believe him to be. Something that might make them make a statement about a faith in who he is. It might seem like a long time, might it? to spend all this time, do all this ministry before even saying, so you've seen all this, what do you make of it? I know we love the stories of people who go from complete and utter ignorance about Jesus to faith in one conversation. They're rare events, but they do happen. Often in reality, people coming to know Jesus, experience Jesus, takes a period of time before they can come to a formed conclusion where they can make a statement about who he is. So don't be concerned or put off by that. Now we're not surprised that Peter is the one who speaks up on behalf of the group. Peter's the guy I reckon in school classroom would have been the first to have a hand up for everything. But he speaks on behalf of the group and representative of what they perceive. And Peter says, you are the Christ. Or in Matthew's account, which has a longer answer, you are the Christ the son of the living God. That's a pretty good answer, isn't it? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. If you had a Bible or a Jesus trivia night down at the pub, you want Peter on your table because he's going to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're going to take home the meat tray, which probably doesn't have any bacon on it. But what is interesting about that is in the gospel of mark this is the first time a human has recognized and stated that jesus is the christ we've got it in the very first verse mark says by way of introduction as the narrator saying he speaks of jesus christ but at this particular point in history that we're speaking about at this time nobody referred to him as jesus christ no one called him JC. It wasn't his last name. He wasn't born to Joseph and Mary Christ. It is a title. 
It says something about his identity. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Remember when Herod and all and Jesus asked the disciples, what does everybody say about him? They had lots of options about what people say about Jesus. None of them had concluded the possibility that Jesus was the Christ. Although Peter got the wording right, his understanding wasn't so good. You get to verses 31 to 32 when Jesus explains that the Son of Man must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Peter thinks, nah, that's not what the Messiah does. And he rebukes Jesus. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks' time, that specific account. What we see for Peter and the disciples, there was no understanding that a Christ, a Messiah, the Anointed One, could suffer. Now, at our point in history, we can look back and think, oh, he's got Isaiah 52, 53, how clear could it be? But there is no understanding in the first century Judaism that associated those verses with connection to the Messiah or to the Christ. Hence why they didn't make the connection of those two things. The term or the title Christ just means Messiah or anointed one. And what we saw last week in the Old Testament, there are three people, groups of people who were anointed. That is, anointed with oil, set apart for a particular purpose by God. They were prophets, priests and kings. So there have been others who have been anointed ones in the Old Testament But never before in all of scripture has there been one who's fulfilled all three of those roles. You've got Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest, but he wasn't a prophet. You've got Moses, who was a prophet, and he served sort of as a priest at times, but he wasn't a king. You've got David, who was a king and a prophet, but he wasn't a priest. But still, every single one of these previous anointed ones pointed forward to the perfect and final anointed, the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is described in the scriptures as the priest in the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5 and 6, who's described as being the prophet like Moses in Acts 3.22 and Deuteronomy 18, the king who's descended from David, Acts chapter 2 and 2 Samuel 7, So the disciples were right in recognising that he is the Christ. But they still had a long way to go in terms of their understanding of what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. But how did they even arrive at this conclusion? If nobody else had come to the conclusion that Jesus might be, or that that he actually is the Christ, how did they get there? How did they get it right? Was it because the disciples spent more time with Jesus than anybody else? No. Was it because they understood the scriptures better than anybody else? No. Was it because they had insider information from Jesus himself? No. So how did they get the answer right? To have a look at that, we need to look at Matthew's more detailed 
parallel account of this same event. When Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, just means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So as Peter proclaims, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, rule out any notion that has come from mankind at all. You haven't figured it out. No other human has told you. No amount of seeking, no amount of understanding would lead you to that conclusion. You know that for no other reason than the Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. That's the extent to which mankind has been corrupted by sin. That we are unable to see rightly who Jesus is within our fleshly nature at all. The only hope for anybody to see Jesus rightly is if the Father reveals that to them. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? One that needs a little bit of thinking. Especially if you're the sort of person who's inclined to look down on people who haven't trusted Jesus yet. Remember what Paul said to the church in Ephesus? He says, For grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No single person can take credit for the means by which they entered into the blessings of salvation of Jesus Christ. Which also means that no Christian ever has a reason to look down upon or belittle others who are in the same position that you once used to be in. Because the only reason that you are not in that same position is not because of something you've done, but because of something God has done within you. Sometimes I think we get a little bit frustrated. We think, if I just tell them plainly, if they don't get it, it's their fault. That's not the way I see the scriptures. That's not the way Jesus seems to see it. To Nicodemus, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or a few chapters later, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So from Jesus' perspective, unless you are born again, or born again from above, he, he rephrases it a bit later in that chapter, you will not see the Father doesn't draw you, you will not come. We're in Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus says the only way to see God the Father is if the Son reveals it to you. And he turns and says to his disciples, Blessed are your eyes. 
Blessed are your eyes. You have received something that your eyes might be able to see and behold who Jesus Christ is. So we shouldn't be discouraged about the fact that it's not within our power to open someone's eyes to see the gospel. Instead, we should be encouraged that it is a supernatural act of God, of a God who has chosen a people before the foundation of the world and who has expressed a desire that all people would come to repentance and understanding of the truth. So what about your answer? We've seen what the general crowds say of Jesus, both first century and we've talked a little about common perceptions today. We've seen what the disciples said about Jesus. But the most important question for each one of us in this room is, who do you say that Jesus is? To follow the pattern of Jesus' line of questioning, I could start by, who do your parents say that Jesus is? What what did you grow up with? Or or what do your friends, the people that you spend time with, what do they say about Jesus? You might say, well, I grew up going to church or I I used to hang out with a group of people and a lot of them were Christians who used to go, go to youth group. But their opinion does not become your opinion. It doesn't just sum it. You don't inherit it from your parents. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not who does your parents say Jesus is. Not who does your pastor say Jesus is. Not who does your friends say Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? It's not a question you can be indifferent Shrug your shoulders, say, don't know, don't care. This is an important question of life and death and eternity. There is no more serious question than this. Jesus says pretty clearly what's at stake. He says, there's two options, eternal punishment, eternal life. That's a pretty serious decision to make. It says everyone's one camp or the other, eternal life, eternal punishment. Everyone is born for eternity. It's going to be one way or the other. To say, ah, don't care, don't know, shrug my shoulders to this question of who is Jesus when that's what's at stake would be like if there was some big chemical war going on that there was going to be no oxygen outside but there was, there was this technology you could have that pump oxygen in your house and you go, yeah, oxygen, don't know, don't care. Each person must reach their own conclusion to this important question, who do you say Jesus Christ is? To own it as your own, take responsibility for it as your own. In our passage in Matthew, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's not the son of God in the extent of which he has been brought into being by God like we might call our children that we've brought into this world. He is the eternal God, equally God, but he is the son in the sense that he is the one who is uniquely related to the father. He is the Christ the anointed one, the prophet, priest and king. What are those things? 
A prophet is someone who speaks the words of God to people. And to give you just a sample of some of the things that this prophet has said, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. We could spend all days of the statements that Jesus has says, Believe in me and you'll have eternal life. If you do not obey me, the wrath of God remains upon you. He's also with a priest. That a priest is someone who represents God to the people and people to God. In the Old Testament times, the priest would be the one who would bring the offerings, the sacrifices before God to deal with people's sins. Yet Jesus came as the perfect and final priest who not only gave the offering before God, but who was the perfect and final offering for sin for all time. And he is the king. As the one who made everything, he is the rightful ruler of every single bit of it. It's his. He owns it. He created it. He sustained it. He is the one who is worthy to be praised for every bit of it. So who do you say that he is? Do you believe that he speaks from God? When he says, whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe he's the one who has taken the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that dealt with the sin that keeps us from God, that keeps us under his judgment, and he has brought that perfectly before God? Do you believe he is the king? the ruler and maker of all things, the one to whom all things belong, the good and perfect king who loves to bless those who are in his kingdom. If you believe he is the one that the Bible says, you hear the words he speaks, you have got no choice but to give thanks as the one who has provided the means of salvation, to say that I am not the king of this life, he is the king. He is the one who has made me right before God. He is the one who tells me reality through his word. And all we can do in response is to bow down, live in humble obedience to our good and loving king, having turned from our sin, repented of our sin, placed our trust in Jesus to live under his kingdom rule forever. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all you have blessed us in Christ. We thank you that that you speak, that you have made it very clear the way by which we can be saved. And there is no other name under heaven or earth by which we can be saved other than Jesus Christ. Lord, this is an important question for us. It's an important question for the entire world for which all of us will give an account. Lord, we thank you that you are the Son of God, the Christ, very fully God, begotten, not made, eternal with the Father from all time, eternal for all time, the returning King who will come and judge the living and the dead. We give you thanks that you have made him known. 
that he has died in our place, that we might be brought into your family. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's going to be a quick break while I go grab some things that I didn't get in what I normally would do in our intermission to prepare for communion. I'll be back.